Welcome back to another episode of Stern Chats. I'm Devna Shukla. And I'm Andrew Slotnick. Hey, Andrew, happy Ally Week. I know, I'm so excited. For those of you who don't know what NYU Ally Week is, Ally Week creates opportunities for students, faculty, and administrators to deepen their understanding of the experiences of others and raise awareness of the individual and collective injustices that confront many in our society and our community. We are excited for our special Ally Week episode to have Dr. Gary Frazier in the studio today. He is Stern's first Associate Dean for Diversity and Inclusion. Before we welcome Dr. Frazier, let's welcome Pat Bardera, who is our wonderful producer on this episode. Hey, Pat. Hey, how you doing? Hey, Pat. So what stuck out to you about this episode with Dr. Frazier? So the thing that I was like just most impressed by with Dr. Frazier was this is his third time at Stern. He came here first as an MBA student in the early 90s when Stern was actually, the campus was located just off of Wall Street. Um, and then he returned again in the early 2000s um, to be the Dean of Career Services and the Dean of Student Affairs. Now he's back here again a third time as the Dean of Diversity and Inclusion. So it's like diversity and inclusion can be a really difficult topic sometimes to talk about, but we have someone who knows Stern so well and has seen it grow so, so much over the past 30 years, I couldn't think of a, of a better person to kind of lead that discussion. He's been able to show a lot of really great perspective um, over the course of his career here, and he was kind enough to share it with us during the interview. Yeah, it was such a pleasure to meet him and to welcome him back to Stern. What do you think, guys? Should we get started? Flip the switch and let's go. Cue that music. From New York University Stern campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Welcome back to another episode of Stern Chats. I'm Andrew Slotnick. And I'm Devna Shukla. Today is super exciting. We are very pleased to welcome Dean Gary Fraser here into the studio. Thank you so much for coming in. It's great to be here. I want to say welcome to Stern Chats, but also welcome back to Stern, which we'll get into for sure. Um, But before we jump right in, in true Stern Chats tradition, we always like to ask someone to give us their 30-second pitch. So would you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Oh, my goodness. I used to run the career office, so I should be good at this. (laughs) (laughs) James Kingham is listening right now. I know. He listens to every episode. (laughs) I will tell you, James Kingham was uh, a grad assistant when I was doing my uh, EDD. No way. Yeah, yeah. I've known James a long time. He credits me with him being here, but it's really him. You know James is James. (laughs) Anyways, okay. So I'll give you a quick one. Um, I always say I was uh, just a kid from Brooklyn, which doesn't really mean much anymore because Brooklyn's so regentrified. But um, first generation, um, I went to Syracuse University. I was excited about going away to school and um, studied marketing and public communications. Um, Quickly went into a sales marketing role and decided I wanted to do more and do more marketing. So I came to NYU Stern. It was the only school I applied to. I felt I had one good application in me, and it worked. Uh, I focused on marketing and brand management, went into that, did it for eight years. And then someone said, hey, you should work at NYU. And I said, doing what? And had some great conversations with the school and came in to run the career office initially and then became dean of students. Um, Went to LA about six, seven years ago to work first at USC and then uh, UCLA, all in the business school capacity. And now I'm back, uh, excited in my new role as Associate Dean of Diversity and Inclusion. Well, we are so grateful to have you here at Stern and can't wait to talk about all things diversity and inclusion. But I want to dig into that. You say you're just a kid from Brooklyn, which doesn't mean a whole lot now. But what was it really like growing up in Brooklyn at that time? 
You know, Brooklyn was distinct. It was still very diverse, but in ways that we didn't fully know. Um, you know, my block was pretty much, um, I would say, African American, but I didn't realize till afterwards that it was really mostly Caribbean American. A lot of Caribbeans immigrated to um, New York and the United States in the 60s and 70s. And my father, I think, did in the late 50s. Um, my parents got married in the early 60s. And, um, you know, we made our life in Brooklyn. And it was an interesting experience because you knew where you knew to go and you knew where not to go. You know, so it's funny now when you look at neighborhoods like Bedford-Stuyvesant, which, you know, we used to you know, say, you know, Bed-Stuy, do or die. And, you, know, just, <laughs> you know, like all these neighborhoods like Fort Greene were just not places you would go. <laughs> you're not sure if you can get out of it. And, and now you can't maybe buy into those neighborhoods, which is really impressive. But Lululemons and SoulCycle. <laughs> yeah, we're not there. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Um, so you spent all this time in New York. So you went to Syracuse, yeah. stayed in state, um, then went to NYU for your, for your MBA. That's correct. Um, what... What more or less drove you to make the move out to California um, to spend some time at, at, at Marshall and Anderson? I imagine that was a huge change of pace and probably took a lot of thought there. It did. I mean, you know, it's such a special thing being an alum and working at your institution. You know, a few of us have gotten to do it. And I enjoyed my 12 years at NYU Stern, and you know, I think I worked for three deans. And I think at some point you wonder, you know, if you've kind of hit a ceiling of experiences. I had a great time, you know, getting to know so many students over the years. But ultimately I was thinking, you know, I've gotten this doctorate in education from the UPenn, which I did while I was working at, at Stern. And I want to explore some new things. Um, and, you know, I think USC was smart because they, you know, flew me out in February. So there was snow on the tarmac when I was flying out and, you know, get the LA and sunny in 75. And mm -hmm. it's like this, this I think I can do, you know. So I think that the person I had replaced when I first came in to run the career office um, had worked there about 10 years. And I, I kind of thought, well, I'll make 2000 to 2010 my decade. And, and I felt that somehow it became 12 years and I felt like I had done a lot and had some great experiences. So it was just time to look at something new. Very cool. I want to sort of wind it back, though, to when you first got to Stern um, in 1990 with the full-time class as one of the 13 consortium scholars at the time. Can you tell us a little bit about consortium and sort of what that, how that sort of framed your um, experience at Stern and also what was similar to or different from Stern today? Well, I have to tell you, you know, me being a consortium fellow was, uh, you know, I, I don't know if I'd be sitting here if I, if I didn't have that as an opportunity. Like I said, I'm first-generation college, and it was pretty daunting, the concept of quitting your job and going back to business school. And I felt like I had one good application in me, and I was considering Columbia, and I was considering Stern. And I felt that I can connect better to NYU Stern. Um, as someone from Brooklyn, I would you know, go to Greenwich Village um, you know, quite often versus you know, so far north in Manhattan. It seems so far away. And I just felt that you know, the consortium was an opportunity for me if I applied and got this fellowship to, to afford to go based on, you know, my merit and doing well on the GMAT and doing well in college. So that provided the opportunity for me. I have a place very near and dear in my heart to the consortium. It's still alive and strong. It's great to see how it's expanded to more schools. Um, and then that network of consortium fellows, the 13 of us, you know, it was, it was important. That's how we got through school. It was a real support group for us. Do you still talk to your 13, or I guess your 12 other classmates? 
I do, I do. It's uh, funny. Uh, two of them have reached out to me since uh, you know I updated my LinkedIn profile, and and we're planning to catch up. You know, um, there was one person actually, and she hates when I say this because she looks a lot younger than me, who was in my class. She wasn't consortium, but she was in my class and part of our group as well as uh, Cynthia Franklin. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, Cynthia. Sorry, because she's like, don't tell people this, but we were classmates. It was funny because we in the our picture book from that year, you know, it's her last name's Franklin, and I'm Fraser, so we literally were right next to each other in, in, the, in the picture book that they would put out of all the students. Um, and we were both marketing-focused, so we uh, worked on some projects together. Um, she was my conference chair for the Opus Conference. Um, so it's it's great to reconnect with her. We talked about her working here when I was working at Stern the first time, and she ended up, you know, coming aboard. And, um, yeah, we'd actually just, you know, uh, with our significant others, Went to see a movie and um, and had dinner yesterday. So it's really fun to be back, and, and and it's great to reconnect with some of the folks that I knew and when I was in New York who were in my class. Yeah, that's so nice. And now she is the director of the entrepreneurship at the um, WR Berkeley Innovation Lab right across the street. So it's really cool to see how you guys started here together and ended up across the street from each other too. Yeah, it's funny how the world is so big but small in some ways. Definitely. So did you go to NYU Stern immediately after graduating from Syracuse? I didn't. You know, I, I applied um, through the consortium, and I got into schools, but I didn't get a fellowship. And so I thought, well, I've got a job, and I should probably pay off my undergrad student loans before I think about going to business school. So um, when I was a senior in at Syracuse, I, I seriously thought about it, and that's how I found out about it. You know, one of my faculty members, when I went to visit her office, had just a poster about the consortium, which I didn't know anything about. So that's how I found out about it. Um, so I got three years of work experience and decided it was time to go to business school. Got it. Because I feel as though this day and age, you there's a, a huge amount of pressure to have meaningful work experience before you come to business school so you can apply that knowledge. But having the, consort, the consortium to, to help steer you there to have that um, experience sounded awesome. Maybe to dive a little bit deeper, um, you were the first president of, of Avis. Um, here at at, uh, at NYU. I know that's really important to you, Devna. You're very involved with that. Can you maybe talk about the leadership experience involved with with really getting that going and, and your role there? Sure. And, and I actually want to get back to even, you know, the final point on the last idea of going straight into business school. I think what happened in the 90s, early 90s, is schools were challenged by employers to not just have people go straight through because, you know, MBAs were making pretty good salaries coming out at the time. But they didn't have any work experience. And so the average year of work experience was maybe like three years there. There were some people that got in right straight through. Um, but it dramatically changed in like two or three years to an average age of about five years, which now it's currently holds at a lot of the top schools. And I think because they wanted people with more managerial experience and more just life experience before they went to get their MBA. So I think that was led by the, the corporate recruiting needs and schools responded um, but I will say that you know the thing that's terrific for me, and I think anyone who takes advantage of it when they're in business school, is to be part of the the club structure. I think it's a great chance to try out managerial and leadership skills. I uh, launched the initial leadership development program here at NYU Stern. That was my dissertation topic at at UPenn, 
as how graduate schools deliver leadership development, and I was very passionate about it. But I built it based on the concept of these experiences in business school are the first many for many people. I mean, maybe they did things in college, but it's a different you know mindset, particularly after people have gone out to work and they're coming back. So it's important to say, how do you? motivate a team of people who aren't getting paid to do something. It's a great experience. It's a great way to figure out what your managerial style is, what your leadership style is. And so I you know, built the leadership development program thinking that people would be able to exercise that muscle or grow that muscle you know, in the club structure. For me, Abbas, you know, it's funny when people say I was, I was the first um, president, it really dates me. Um, and, I, <laughs> I, 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 and I like to say I was technically the first president because when I was the first year, the club was called the Association of Black Business Students. And there were uh, three students who identified as Latinx, and they were too small to have their own club. And so when I became president of ABBS, I asked the members to change the name, and we voted to change it to Opus. There was some negotiation because people said, well, you know, the the larger population are the black students, and so why would the H go before the B? And there was... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's it's, it's got to have a ring to it. It's got to have, yeah, off your tongue. exactly. It had to, have to, you know, it had to be phonetically correct, right. you know, doable. So, so that's how it became obvious. Um, and, you know, I, I have to credit those students that, you know, said, hey, I don't identify as black or African-American, but I understand the need to network with people that are going through some shared experiences. And so, so I, I technically was the first president of Abbas. I, I do like to see it more as I was the person that kind of allowed it to become Abbas versus an organization that was successful for years, many years before, but just was called APPS. It's really cool, though, because as Andrew mentioned, I'm one of the vice presidents of allyship for Abbas, and Abbas has been such a core part of my personal and professional growth. I mean, some of the smartest, most dynamic, most caring people are, that I know are members and presidents of Abbas. Did you know at that time that it would still continue to really gain strength and be such a powerhouse here on campus? I mean, here at, at school, Abbas is leading the charge on so many great recruiting events and social events and cultural events. And this is also like 28 years later, you know, that you're coming back. Um, I hope that you feel really proud of what Abbas has done because I think that every president has tried to basically build on, you know, what you all started back in the day. Well, thanks for throwing in the 28 years. You know, I just put, we, it's a <laughs> data school. That was quick math. math. <laughs> just the fact that it's Let's such a high number. I was like, <laughs> call out 28 years? Yeah, let's call it out. You know, I, I, to be honest with you, I, I could not have imagined that Abbas um, was going to be what it is today. And, and for me, uh, even when I came back to work at Stern in 2000 and, and the years from 2000, 2012, it was great to see how it grew. You know, when we had Abbas, it was, you know, primarily two things. It, it was served as a support group for the very few numbers that, you know, identified with the club. And it also uh, provided an outlet for recruiting. You know, so we did a conference. Um, you know, I was the first president to take the conference off campus. Um, I remember there was a Marriott that opened in lower Manhattan and, you know, we worked out a deal because they were new to do the conference there. It was radical that we were doing it off campus and it cost more money, but we got more sponsorship. But we felt that if we got corporate sponsors involved, they would want to recruit, you know, our students. And we had some success with that. So it was really those two purposes, to be a support group from each other, make sure everyone was okay and felt safe in in an environment where you were an extreme minority. And also to, um, you know, provide 
you know, career opportunities for our, for our members. Now, it's, it's great to see how it's evolved where it still serves as that role, but in addition, it, it creates um, a broader sense of community, you know, the concept of allyship. Like, we didn't even think about that at the time. And not only is it broader community responsibilities, um, it also is educational and informational, right? Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of some of the programming and events you do. And so, at first, I was thinking, "Wow, they're doing so much, and and I, are they going to lose focus?" But I think they just expanded their focus. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, as a, as a you know young student, in my you know, mid twenties, I never would have guessed that Abbas would be so impactful. I felt at the time we just needed to make sure we got enough exposure for our members. But um, there's an important role so that everyone can understand where people come from. And I think to see Abbas doing that and being as large as it is definitely warms my heart. One thing that has really struck me about Abbas and about my experience here at Stern is that it is absolutely a pillar of the student body. Mm-hmm. Um, they're extremely well organized. The organization really does a great job of including everybody um, in in whether it's career-focused events, whether it's beer blast, whatever it may be. Um, th- they're really, really great, and it's been a wonderful part of my experience. Given that and your new role as Dean of Diversity Inclusion, how are you looking to, I guess, lean on Abbas, organizations like Abbas, to enhance your role as well as provide them with strength. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that relationship? Yeah, it's funny. I was talking to Dean Sunderam just, you know, last week, and and I said, you know, if I had to create this title, I would call it Dean of Community because I really think that when you use the term diversity and inclusion, it it certainly attracts people that are comfortable with that and, and connect to that. But it also is intimidating for some people. And so some people will say, well, I'm not an expert in that space or I think that's applying for other, you know, applies to other people. And uh, one of the things I was able to do at UCLA Anderson that I definitely want to bring here in my role is the concept of having dialogue around social identities. You know, everyone has a social identity, whether it's uh, regarding race or gender or sexual orientation or religious beliefs. And I think it's important that we have dialogue about these identities um, because when you don't, people will then try and fill in the blanks. I'm assuming that someone of, of this social identity thinks this way or acts this way. And until you hear it from someone directly, you know, you're still going to have these misconceptions. You know, and, and we all do it. You know, so I think that I would leave it on Abbas and lots of folks, as well as, you know, I know there's a diversity committee to say, how do we start dialogue with different social identities and how do we continue that dialogue? Absolutely. And, you know, to your point, diversity and inclusion is a very loaded term and also a very, like, manufactured term all at the same time. I'd love to hear about, as what I, I'm going to start calling you the dean of community. It's a pretty cool title anyway. <laughs> like um, what does it mean at Stern to talk about diversity and inclusion in that sense, you know? And how do you basically push students think about not only diversity and inclusion here in the classroom and in clubs, but also when they leave here with their degree and enter the working world? That's a great question. You know, I think that the thing I loved about working at Stern, which was different when I was a, as a student, was that when, you know, when someone walks in the building, they're, they're stern. And mm-hmm. I think that they're seen as stern. And it doesn't mean that they're shedding or asked to shed their social identities or who they are. They're allowed to bring them in with them. You know, So I think that's why it's very natural for Abbas to be a pillar and be very involved, as well as many other clubs that are focused on certain affinity or identity groups. And so I think that the lesson has to be because you went through this exercise, and perhaps some people is the first time where they accepted someone for who they are um, in this environment because it's such a nice, tight-knit community, 
that how do you create an environment like that in the future, in your future world of work? I was talking to some executive MBAs when I was at UCLA Anderson, and I talked about how you know, if you can't have a conversation about different social identities or connect with people, you're not going to be able to lead them, mm-hmm. you know? And if you're an executive MBA, that means you're at a certain level at this point, and it's going to be a career-limiting move, you know? The work teams of the future are going to be very diverse. And so I think if we can figure out how do we take this experience here at Stern and figure out how do we, you know, duplicate that in the outside world, it's about trust, it's about relationship building, it's about, you know, understanding people as individuals as opposed to making assumptions based on their social identities. But this is a great learning ground and, and, and a great opportunity to um, try out different things or explore so that when people go out, they will be able to be effective managers and leaders of the future. One thing that we've talked about on this podcast before is um, my experience at NYU Stern has been the most diverse experience of my life, and that's really important to me. And um, the former dean here, Dean Peter Henry, said something during the first week which really stuck with me, and that was, if you have a diverse experience here, if you if you get and, and feel immersed in that, you will be a more effective business person because that will be a competitive advantage that you will have against somebody who might not have had those types of experiences. And that's something that's really stayed with me. In that same theme, what are your goals um, in your role to keep that up, to keep Stern as one of the most diverse MBA programs in the country and the world? Well, I think I want to figure out how we can take this uniqueness, because I don't think all business schools have this. Um, I think it's something about the size. A lot of times people are worried about what a school is ranked. I really think one of the important numbers is how big is the program? You know, if it's too big, are you really going to build the relationships you need to build? And if you do, will you build it in just select groups? So I think the nature of the size of the program creates a great opportunity for people to build relationships who are different than each other. Um, But I do think that it's important to say, how do we look at this whole community? And while I think Stern and certainly the full-time MBA program has this really tight-knit community, there's an opportunity to connect and share lessons learned with the undergrad institution as well. And certainly the part-time MBA population, if not the executive MBA population, we have some new degree programs. And so I think that a good way to test out what's created and built in the culture here at Stern and certainly the full-time population uh, before people go back out into that real world is to, can you extend it? Can you extend it by mentoring an undergrad? Can you extend it by working with someone in the Langone program that you may not have worked with before? You know, and I think it's understanding where people are coming from. And I think that's something that happens easily when you're in a very tight-knit community. But I think Stern can be that much more powerful if we can connect all these dots, and particularly the full-time MBAs, because they have a lot to offer, certainly with undergrads, and people who they share the same social identities are ones that are different, you know. So I think that when I think about my work, a lot of it is in areas of taking some of the things that's working on the full-time MBA side and, and, and spreading it to some of the other areas. You know, and, and for the flip side of that question, the numbers are also not super great in business schools across the board. I'm sure you hear this all the time, whether here, you know, at Stern or basically in terms of women, race and whatnot. How do you basically handle the most challenging parts of diversity where there is no quick fix to basically influence the student population? Um, And how do you think Stern can be a real leader to change the game on that? That's a great question. You know, we struggled with this at at both USC Marshall and UCLA Anderson. And I think the thing that started to work at Anderson, which, you know, we were just starting 
um, that I'd love to bring here is a lot of times it's acknowledgement that there's issues with maybe the way a school is structured in terms of the population. And I think what happens is people try and solve the problem in, in silos. And I think I've had some success uh, at Anderson working with student leaders to address the challenges and figure out, you know, how do we solve it? So, for example, one of the things I worked with, um, it's called the Women's Business Connection, but it's kind of akin to SWIB here. And the leadership was, how do we address the fact that, you know, probably 20, 25% um, of the cases in the core have female protagonists? And we just focus specifically on female, female protagonists. And I, I happen to be on the board of the Forte Foundation, and I started talking to them about that, and, and it's become a project that we partnered with a few other top business schools, uh, Columbia, um, MIT Sloan, I think Tuck, um, and Darden, to say, let's do an audit of our core, and let's see where there are cases with female protagonists, and we can information share. And we actually hired an outside consultant to do it, so it was all independent data. And we found, at least Anderson found, that out of all those five schools, Anderson was a little ahead than mm-hmm. you know, maybe that 25% of the cases. Um, but I think the thing is, once you start doing the exploration, then you have to set some, some goals. Because I think you, you can't say, well, we want to get to 50%, and until we get to 50%, we're not going to be happy. I think you need to set some milestones. And so one thing I was pushing for is that every school should say, you know, at the first look at our population, that case, you know, just for the core should match up. So if you're a third international, a third of the cases maybe should be international. If you're, um, you know, 35% women, maybe 35% should be female protagonists. And you certainly want to grow that, particularly when you think about um, domestic diversity. Mm -hmm. But until you start saying, how do we get to this next step? um, But I think the important thing was we involve student leadership. So their conversation with perspectives were prospective students were you know we're not where we should be but this is what we're doing about it and this is how we're involved as leaders you know so they had dialogue with faculty i certainly was an advisor for them you know they started looking at other potential cases so and we were able to benchmark with other schools so i think you have to put a plan in place but you've got to involve everyone not go away and say i'm going to fix this problem and come back and here's the answer yeah it's such a tangible fix and solve by looking at the curriculum and looking at cases that's really interesting. One thing I wanted to ask, um, you, you mentioned something interesting. You touched upon international students. Feel free to, to say to come back to this later. But obviously with new immigration policies in this country, a lot of our listeners are international students who are interested in coming to a USMBA program, and there's a lot of uncertainty there. Mm-hmm. Um, where does NYU Stern stand on that? What's our view on that? Um, and, and what might you be thinking of doing to, to help those students have a successful experience here? You know, I think the MBA is an amazing degree. Like I said, it, it defined who I was. And I, I don't. I think the university is, is very high on international students. I think we're one of the largest, if not the largest, um, school in terms of in, international population. So I know as, a, as an institution, New York University is, and I know Stern is as well. I think when I think about my role and, and the job description, the three or the four things that it says throughout is not just diversity and inclusion, but also belonging and equity. And so it's a term that I think the university uses, IDBE. And when I think about 
international students, I particularly think about this concept of belonging um, because you could say, hey, we're including you. You're at least admitted or you can be part of this organization. Um, but including someone doesn't mean that you're allowing them to bring their whole self. And I think belonging does. Belonging says we want to learn from your whole self. We want you to bring your whole self. And certainly, if you're getting an education in America, certainly there's certainly social norms and cultural things that people obviously have to adjust to. But it doesn't mean that they should shed who they are. And I think that's the most important thing when you think about international students is making sure they feel like they belong because a lot of students don't. I, I talk to students a lot, you know, over the years who, you know, it's, they just feel that there's these cliques that develop and, and they're just not a part of it and they'll ask for advice on how they can get connected. So I think creating the sense of belonging is critical and I think that's one that I think of international students first and foremost when I think about that, that, that one aspect. So you mentioned belonging, and I could be wrong here, but I feel as though the MBA is a very American thing. And you have a lot of international students who are coming to the United States to have that American graduate experience. Um, it, it, I, I can see how that's important, right? And I can see how that's important to be, to be successful, but at the same time, they should come and feel free to be themselves and, and make the community more international than what it is when you think of the front page of the Wall Street Journal or something like that. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think you're right. I think I think the I think the MBA is is kind of saturated or oversaturated in the United States, and it's growing probably a little more internationally now because there's probably enough programs here in in the United States. It's it's funny. I used to say when I, I used to drive down. I had a sister used to live in Charlotte, North Carolina. I drive from you know the New York area down there. And on the drive, I'd see maybe like two or three billboard ads for MBA programs. And I'm thinking, okay, this is way too oversaturated. If someone thinks, okay, I'm going to put a billboard up and people are going to go to my business school. But I think that, you know, socially, I do think that international views at the right school are certainly always accepted. I mean, one of the things that I knew happened for many years, and I'm not sure if it still does, is an event called Passport Day. And, you oh, know, yeah. Yeah, so that, that's a great, you know. <laughs> Beer blast after Passport Day. Yeah, exactly. So so I, I think that, you know, that was an early representation of everyone bringing, you know, where they're from, you know, here to Washington Square. Um, but I do think that we need to, as educators, say, what can we learn from different parts? Now, I think we do some of that with doing business in. I think that that allows people to see snippets of business in other parts of the world. But I do think that the challenge is, is you know, I, I can just imagine coming from another part of the world and having to speak maybe not your first, uh, maybe sometimes your second language and contribute to the classroom and the the pressure to do so. And so it's kind of a both-way environment where we have to make sure the environment's comfortable enough for international students to share, what is this industry like where I'm from? Or why is it not as successful here? And so it, it has to happen in the classroom as well. And I think that's one thing where when you think about the cases, yeah, if there are cases that are international enough, then by nature people will be more comfortable talking about that home region. I was teaching a class once at Anderson, and it involved – um, kind of freedom of the press and telling this one story. It was an international story, international case. And and um, the class was divided where whether this story should even be published in the United States. And it was a clear division between the American students said, oh, yeah, freedom of the press. It should be it should be in the, in the news. And, and the international students were like, yeah, I don't think I would run this story because 
I think about my country, and I wouldn't want my country to be known for just that thing. And right. so it was really interesting to have an international perspective. I was going to say, I'm really glad you brought up the cases because, um, look, as an American, somebody who was born in the United States, whose parents are American, you really don't think like that, right? So here we are. This was, I think, last year. We were taking an exam, and the case for the exam was Red Lobster. International students, <laughs> right. they might, they have, some of them have no idea what Red mm -hmm. Lobster is and, right. and how to talk about it with regards to competitors. And it was brought up like, hey, we need to pick something a bit more global than that. Mm -hmm. And rightfully so, for the final, it was definitely a much more globally recognized international company that wasn't U.S.-based. Um, so it's just, it's interesting to think, like when you flip through all the Harvard Business School cases that we here at Stern use, and I'm sure a lot of business schools use throughout the country, it, you definitely need more of that international tilt to it, for sure, to make it relevant. Yeah, and I think that's part of the challenge, right? Because they kind of have a monopoly on the market. And, and, you know, I think only about 15% of their cases have female protagonists, you know? So, right. so it's kind of like you're dealing with a, a, a set of options that aren't ideal to begin with. But I do think, you know, one of the things that, you know, with this project with the other business schools is, you know, let's at least share the cases we're using in our core. So maybe someone has an international case that someone finds interesting that they're not using. So I think by having the dialogue with a few other schools, we might be able to balance things. But I think that's a great story and very applicable what, what, what I'm trying to, the point I'm trying to make. Yeah, yeah for sure. Definitely. We would like to do something like we, that we like to call here rapid fire and right. ask you a few questions and just answer whatever comes to mind, whatever choice, whatever you want to do. Okay. Um, I'm personally invested in this question as someone who went to UCLA as well. Ah. But Lakers or Knicks? Knicks. Knicks. Totally. No Kobe. It's, you know, I always say as a New Yorker, I follow any sports team that loses. So that's the Knicks. <laughs> You're the, very busy then. Yeah, 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 well, it's a sad life. The Knicks, the Jets. <laughs> The Mets, it's just any team that's just not going to win. <laughs> it's the Jets, the yeah. Mets. Oh, boy. Any, any, any that's team. tough. It's tough. That's tough. Okay. Uh, Shake Shack or In-N-Out? Oh. Oh, wow. Um, mm, In-N-Out. Really? Yeah, yeah. The, the patties the are double, so double. thin. You get, just to say double-double. Just to say double-double in the sauce, you know, it's just... You can't go wrong. It's close, but in and out. Do you go off the secret menu, like the animal style and things? No, like that? I, I'm not that You've got to try that. That's I do. Like, we're like the secret of so the So you just say sauces. animal style and that's, yeah. okay. Oh, I'm sending you, this is probably the most unprofessional email you'll probably get in your certain <laughs> career, a secret menu of in and out No burger. way. Yeah. Okay. I'm there. Listen, I, I'm sure Andrew has some good in and out tricks up his sleeve too. I, I've been there twice. Wow. wow. And it's for really nerdy reasons. There's a really famous in and out that's right on the approach path at LAX. Yes. Mm -hmm. So you sit and you eat your burgers and there's a 747 <laughs> like 50 feet over oh, your head. Man. That's that's what I like. <laughs> well, I'm going there in March, so give me, give me the list. Yeah, I'm, we're going to get yeah. you the list for sure. Um, sub, taking the subway or walking? Ooh, subway. Although I, I like my commute now. I, I have a 15-minute walk uh, to Columbus Circle, and then I take the subway, and then I have another five-minute walk. So I get my walking in. That's good. But, you know, adjusting back from L.A., it, it's cold here, you know, and when the wind blows, it's like, I don't want to be walking. So. Do you miss L.A. traffic? No, I don't. I don't. <laughs> I don't. I feel like as much as we, what's the word, I'm trying to not use profanity here, as much as we <laughs> give a hard time to the subway here in, uh, in, in New York, it's pretty reliable, relatively speaking, to other public transport 
transportation systems in the United States. At least that's what well, I. Well, that's found. true, and you know, I always just say oh, the subway is the great equalizer. I mean, you know, when Bloomberg was mayor, he'd take the subway. You know, millionaires would take. You don't know. Mm-hmm. They may not look like a millionaire, but there's millionaires <laughs> taking subways. You know, so obviously homeless people on the subway. You have everything, and and that's the thing with L.A., which was weird. It's like. The mass transit is bad. It's slower than driving, as bad as driving is. But it's like this weird socioeconomic thing where mm-hmm. it's like, you know, it, it hasn't – it's not seen as something that everyone takes. Totally. And even though they've tried to expand the rail system, um, and you would know this better than any of us, that they actually had a whole system like 100 years ago, but the auto and oil lobbyists basically shut it down. <laughs> and that's a different thing about L.A. too. Is L.A. is like a collection of 10 small cities. Um, I know this is rapid fire, so I'm going to stop talking. <laughs> well, we're going to ask Yankees or Mets, but I feel like you already. Yeah, 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 definitely not Yankees. No, Mets. What about prediction for 2019? I think the Mets are going to make the playoffs. Um, I'm not sure about the Yankees, and I don't really care. But you know, I, I, I think, and I don't think, I don't think the Patriots are going to win anymore ever again. I think Tom Brady is done. You, know. you heard it here first on Stern Chats. That's yeah, Tom yeah. Brady's done, I hope. <laughs> I hope so. Now, oh, a lot of man. people don't know that uh, just in Jets history, the reason Tom Brady is Tom Brady is because of the Jets, because he went in to start after somebody on the Jets, I think it was Mo Lewis, like literally knocked out Drew Bledsoe, who was the quarterback yep. at the time. So people that know, know. They know, they that, know. That was like the Vinny Testaverde days of the, the Jets back then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do you have a favorite Stern professor that you remember from your time here? Oh, my goodness. That would get me in so much trouble. Um, or a memorable one. Or a teacher who you had who's still teaching. You know, it's funny. I was just talking to a professor literally before I came down here. And I said, you know, I think the only professor that's still here that I can remember is Nick Akatomides. Um mm. Yeah. He's the only one, and um, I hope I, I'm assuming he's not going to listen to this podcast. But, but I we th- haven't had him on. Yeah, so, well, well, as long as he doesn't friends. as long as he doesn't listen to this one, because I remember he was teaching, and and it was like core economics class, and and it was something you know we just didn't understand. And he's like, you guys don't understand this. I'm like, no. Could you go through this again? He's like. They got this at Stanford. I don't know why you don't understand it. <laughs> like, what? Did you just say that? We don't have that vitamin D over here. That's my, that's exactly. my excuse. I didn't take his class, but I heard in, he teaches firms and markets to first-year MBAs. I heard that he, he knows a lot of folks who are movers and shakers oh, yeah. in the Greek government, especially yeah. regarding yeah. Um, their, their debt restructuring, et cetera, and well, he's a, he, you know, he's a great name to be a professor. Kind of meeting. Right? right? How cool is that, right? <laughs> amazing. It's amazing. Twist. Right. Yeah. 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 Oh, man. You know, this episode is actually really special because we're going to air it during NYU Stern's Ally Week. And so I'm curious also selfishly as a VP of allyship for Avis, you know, how do you define allyship and what do you think are some of the best parts about allyship in the Stern community? You know, it's funny. I was just speaking at this panel. Um, I think there's a company not too far away from here. Um, well, they have a location. It's called Notel. And they had uh, this conference for Black History Month. And mm-hmm. they invited me to be a panelist. And and someone asked about how uh, a woman who identified as um, lesbian, she's like, you know, how how do you get people to get engaged when, you know, it's it's maybe your social identity is one that's not visible. And I said, you know, and I actually talked about Ally Week, and I said, you know, what's great about Ally Week is, you know, traditionally the term ally has been one associated to a group that maybe is LGBTQ. And um, 
to have Ally Week be something that that community is saying, we're comfortable giving up Ally for everyone to use it and other social identity clubs and affinity clubs, I think is really powerful. Just the concept that you're saying, okay, we're not going to own this because you're going to expand this to be so much more. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I said you should think about doing something like that, have an ally week, because then it's just saying, hey, we support all social identity differences. And it makes people who maybe has one that they're not as, you're not going to say, hey, I'm gay. Maybe they don't feel comfortable saying that in their work environment. But if you say ally week, and you know these multiple social identities are coming in to talk about how we can support each other, mm-hmm. is so powerful. So I think the concept that it happens, you know, like that certainly wasn't around when I was in business school. It wasn't around when I first started working at, at Stern. So uh, the first time. And so I think that just the statement of having it and doing it is a lot more powerful than I think the the, the people in the Stern community realize. Mm -hmm. It's really cool, though, because Ally Week can, you know, basically have stakeholders and a committee based out of everyone from the Veterans Club, Jewish Students Association, Outclass or LGBTQ Club, you know, obviously ABBAS, Stern Women in Business. It's like every club on campus has some way to come and influence a conversation about what is allyship and how do you really be a true ally in the workforce as well. For sure. Um, I guess a a closing thought. What over your 30-year association with NYU Stern has changed the most, and what are you looking forward to changing more uh, throughout your upcoming tenure? Yeah, it's so funny when you use numbers that are probably more than you've been alive. But, um, you know, so, yeah, 30 years, wow. It's... uh, it's, you know, NYU as an institution, and I would say this is the same thing for Stern, has, you know, when I was growing up, it was a good regional school to go to. If you wanted to go to a good school in New York City, you go to NYU. Um, and it's grown from that to being, you know, a very strong national institution, I would say, in the 80s, 90s, and now really a premier global institution. And when you look at the history of education in America, there's very few institutions that have been able to take that leap. You know, one from regional to national and then national to global. And I think the thing that's been neat about it is you can't assume that every school within NYU has followed suit. But NYU Stern definitely has. You know, you think about the campuses that uh, are opened and even having an executive MBA option in in Washington, D.C. So I think the um, impact of NYU Stern has grown so much over the years, and it's great to see that. And um, in many different ways. It's not just a finance school anymore, you know, which is pretty much what it was known as when, when I went. And to think about the things that it's doing on, in the social enterprise side, we mentioned entrepreneurship, um, certainly tech. I mean, there's just so many different areas. And I think it's part and parcel of what New York is all about. It, New York is definitely about, you know, survival at first and then thrive. You know, if you can survive, then you're going to thrive in New York. And I think that's why I always, always say, why would you not get your MBA in New York City? Because this is where the business center is. And if you can learn this, you're going to do really well in your life. It's so true. Well, Dr. Frazier, it was such a pleasure to have you in the Stern Chat studio today. Welcome back to Stern. We are so happy to have you home. Thanks for having me. This has been great. Can we do it again sometime? Of course. We have so much more we got to uncover with you, but part two, stay tuned. (laughs) Thank you. 